This episode of The Real Fit Podcast is brought to you by The Real Nourished Newsletter. Real Nourished, reinventing your relationship with food, is for you if you are ready to stop micromanaging your food and exercise so you can start fully showing up to your life. Each biweekly issue features evidence-based tools that will help reduce your food-related anxiety, improve your body image, and help you embrace exercise as a form of nourishment, not punishment. When you subscribe, you'll get my free guide, 11 Things You Can Do Right Now to Feel Better About Your Body. To get in on it, just click on the link in the show notes or visit my website, pam-more.com. Welcome to the Real Fit Podcast, featuring conversations with women athletes about body image, confidence, enoughness, and so much more. This is a show for any woman who has ever asked herself, am I enough? In a world that's trying to tell us that we're not good enough, we're not thin enough, we're not successful enough, not fast enough, not strong enough, I am here to tell you that you are enough just as you are. And my goal is to share stories and insights that will inspire you and let you know you're not alone. I'm your host, Pam Moore. I'm an occupational therapist turned freelance journalist with bylines in outlets including The Washington Post, Time, The Guardian, Runner's World, Self Magazine, Bicycling, Outside, and many others. I'm also a two-time Ironman finisher, a six-time marathoner, a mom of two, and an intuitive eating coach. I'm super excited to share today's episode with you. Before we dive in, I have a quick request. If you have been enjoying this podcast or if you end up enjoying this particular episode, it would mean so much to me if you haven't already, if you would subscribe to this podcast or follow it, rate it and review it. That helps other people find it, helps me spread that message that you're already enough. Or if you're inclined, share the episode on social media. If you do, I would love if you would tag me. My handle on Instagram is at pammore 303 On Twitter, I'm at PamMoreWriter. With no further ado, let's do this thing. Today for a change, in honor of my one-year anniversary of launching the podcast, my husband Dan is interviewing me. So instead of me asking all the questions, I'm going to be answering the questions. So even though I guess I'm the quote-unquote guest, He's my guest host, so I'm going to introduce him to you. Dan Moore is a fourth-generation Coloradan. He's a software developer. He's a permaculturist. I will link to permaculture in the show notes because you probably don't know what that is. But it basically means, tell me if I get this right, Dan, you're using what's already there as much as you possibly can. And it's the idea of it is sustainability essentially. Is that right? Um, permaculture comes from permanent agriculture. So the idea is you build a system that's kind of in contrast to the monoculture or the crop monoculture that we have uh, that produces most of our food today. Okay. So I don't want that was complicated. But a fun permaculture story is when we were dating, there was a Rubbermaid on my side of the bed, which I assumed was like a single man's night table, which it was. But it also turned out to be a storage container. I learned this through his blog. So I was blogging frequently back then. And every time I'd post a blog, I'd be like, did you read it? Did you read it? Did you read it? And then I'd watch him read it. I read his blog, on the other hand, very intermittently. And I remember visiting the blog one day and I found out not only was this Rubbermaid thing a container, like a storage unit, it was a storage for his worms. He was using worms as, I guess, compost 
And this was where I was like setting down like my glasses and my retainers and my book every night. And I was like, I've been sleeping next to worms. Okay. But at this point, I was head over heels in love with him. So even worms could not stop me from trying to lure him. We've been together since 2008. He actually, fun fact about Dan and kind of how I knew that he was special. We met in a bar and after we met, we spoke on the phone. We were like setting up our first date. And he said, I hope this doesn't like freak you out, but I looked, I Googled you and I found your blog and uh, it's, it's really funny. I really liked it. And so of course I was flattered and I appreciated that. But Dan has always encouraged my writing. He has always encouraged any creative pursuit that I've wanted to try, including this podcast. Dan is just, he's a really kind person. He's also really driven. Like if he wants to get something done, he'll just do it. Like I took uh, I think when we only had one kid, I took her back to visit my folks for a couple weeks. And like, while I was gone, he just like wrote a book. Like he just wrote a book. He he actually created a book for me um, in 2015. So we'd been talking about collecting some of my blog posts and making a book out of them. And it was sort of just like a fun idea that I never really followed up on. And like, lo and behold, on my 37th birthday, I'm like opening what I thought was the Lululemon hoodie that I had ordered for myself and said to him, hey, just like put this in a bag and give me a card and that'll be fine. And I'm opening it. And I did think it was weird that he was recording it because he's not the type to like record every moment. And when I was at the bottom of the bag, like feeling tissue paper underneath it, I felt a book and it was my book like that I wrote and he got an ISBN number. He got blurbs. He got a friend of mine to write a beautiful forward. It was just you know, and that was when I was transitioning from occupational therapy to writing. And that was his way of saying, I see you as a writer, even if you don't. I feel like I'm going to cry just saying this. Um, but I think that story kind of just exemplifies what a partner he is and has always been and I think will continue to be. <laughs> He's just a lovely human. feel so lucky to have him as my partner. I'm, I don't know. Maybe I'm just like rambling at this point, but I'm going to hand the mic over to Dan. Thank you, Pam, for that fantastic introduction. Um, I have a lot less lengthy introduction for you, <laughs> but I am thrilled to be able to take this opportunity because I've listened to some, not all of your podcasts, and I've, but I've heard a lot more than I've listened to because I think you and I have talked about a lot of the things that you've done about this podcast, some of the struggles you've had some of the uh, joys and the victories you've had. So I'm really excited to be on the other side of the microphone. But one thing I do want to say is that, you know, Pam is an amazing athlete and an amazing person. She's done six marathons, two Ironman, some crazy swims, like a three-mile swim, I recall. Um, and, you know, I think that all makes, you know, those are all amazing athletic achievements. But that's not what makes her an athlete. I think what makes her an athlete is she loves it and she gets up and does it even the days where she doesn't love it. As you saw with her intro, she's quite the storyteller and I am definitely not a storyteller, so I'm not going to even try to compare. I'm going to take a step back and start asking Pam some questions because this is a chance for you all, the listeners, and me as well to learn a little bit more about Pam. So, the first thing I wanted to ask Pam is, can you give us kind of an overview of your fitness journey? Well, I would be happy to. I'm sure I've discussed this on the podcast before in passing, but I wasn't athletic growing up. 
There's so many factors. A big one is I'm really nearsighted and have been since I was six to the point where every eye doctor I've ever been to has been like, wow, I've actually never seen anybody with this type of prescription. So the fact that I was so vain that I would not wear my glasses until I was 10, I maybe even older, I missed all those like formative years of like being able to see where I was going, being able to see where the ball was. So why would I like catching a ball? I couldn't do it, you know? And it's like a downward spiral. The less you are good at it, the less you want to do it, the less you practice, the worse, you know, the more your peers are progressing and you're just static. Like, a, you know, I probably had the ball skills of like a four and a half year old at every stage of my elementary school life. That sucked. I I hated sports and discovered running through lacrosse. I joined the lacrosse team in high school. God knows why. I think I was flattered that my friends said, hey, why don't you? I was just like, wow, they want me. I was like so hungry for that belonging that I was like, yes, something with a stick that I've actually never seen before and a tiny ball that would be really painful if it hit you and everybody running around at once. Yes, count me in. That was terrible through it, I discovered running. I had to run to get in shape for tryouts. And I just realized, wow, the progress is so concrete where so many other things in life are so, there's so many variables that could throw it off. For the most part with running, if you keep showing up, no workout has to be perfect or long or intense or anything. You just keep showing up as a beginner, you're going to get better. And I did. So that was really enticing. And that was almost addictive from that early running career uh, uh, during grad school, I ran a marathon, you know, I ran another marathon, got injured, got into biking and swimming. And then, of course, a triathlon came next. A friend said, hey, I'll do an Ironman if you do an Ironman. To me, in my sick competitive mind, that was my friend throwing down the gauntlet. That's how I've probably done most ridiculous things that I've done. It, all it takes is somebody being like, why don't we? And in my head, I'm like, is that a dare? you're on. My second Ironman was just sort of like, why not? I did one. It was fun. I'll do another. And then I got burnt out. Since I've had kids, things have shifted. I got more into running since we had kids because of time constraints. And now because of on and off injuries that keep me, you know, I'll have like a few good weeks of running and then something will hurt. I'm just like, I don't have the patience for this. There's only so many hours in the week to, you know, do exercises that may or may not work and to go to PT and all the things. So um, kind of fast forwarding, but I still enjoy pushing myself and I still enjoy competing. I don't do it as much and I don't do the longer distances, but I like competing in a sprint triathlon. I like going out for a group ride with my cycling team. It's not necessarily a race. It's just, you know, fun. I swim. I bike. I lift weights. I'm much more now focused on just getting it done for mental health reasons and less for performance reasons, although it's still really gratifying to have that experience of showing up and seeing improvements. That that feels good. But I now know that sometimes a 20-minute workout is all I have time for, and that's just fine. I used to never do that. I would have thought, what is the point of changing my clothes and having to take a shower? And now I know sometimes you just have that feeling of like you're crawling out of your skin. You just need to move. Like, that's me. And, um, and that helps. Does that answer the question? Absolutely. Absolutely. So one memory I have of you and me is we were on our honeymoon, I believe, and we went on a run together and we, you weren't content to just jog. You actually wanted to like compete. And so you would point out like telephone poles and you'd say, who can, who can race to that one? 
I think you're remembering it wrong because I remember <laughs> I remember being on the honeymoon and you'd be like, come, let's go for a run. And I'd be like, seriously, we're not, I don't know. I'm not in the mood. And you'd be like, no, you're come on. I, you're a little blah. Like, I think you're going to feel better if you do. Let's do it. And so we would do it. And I remember you trying to race me to the phone bowls and me for the first 10 feet having all the enthusiasm in the world and then dying because I can never beat you in a sprint. So that's how I remember it. Well, if you have to pick between my memory and Pam's, I would definitely pick Pam's. My other, uh, my next question is, you know, and you alluded to this when you were kind of giving your fitness journey, is that you're pretty competitive. And I wonder if you could talk about the roots of that competitiveness. Probably in like my deep insecurity that nobody's going to notice me. <laughs> Probably that little young, I guess my therapist would say the young part of me that is like, do I matter? I'm really working hard on knowing that I matter. As as my podcast guest, Jenny Schuyler said, she said, I know I ma- matter no matter what. I love that. I do think it really just feels good. Of course, it feels good to win, but it, nothing makes me feel more alive than when I am physically pushing myself to the point where I feel like I could throw up. I love that feeling. To me, that is so invigorating. Competition is fun for me. And I also think there's definitely a component of, gosh, does anybody notice me? I think I still have some, I know I still have some inner work to do, but I'm working on that. Hey, it's Pam with a quick interruption. If you are ready to heal your relationship with food, exercise, your body, if you're ready to stop stressing about the scale, if you're ready to stop trying to shrink your body and have a much, much, much bigger life where you can really be present, I can help you. I am an intuitive eating coach with a background of over 10 years as an occupational therapist. I've also done health and fitness writing for publications including The Washington Post, Self, Runner's World, Bicycling, Outside, The Guardian, Time. And I have also, as you probably know, been on my own journey to heal my relationship with food and body image. If you want to know more about how I can help, check out my website. I'm at pam-more.com. You can also just scroll down in the show notes. There's a link there. Also, I talk about all this stuff in my bi-weekly newsletter. If you're not already a subscriber, scroll on down in the show notes. Just click on the link to sign up. When you do, you'll get my free download, 11 Things You Can Do Right Now to Feel Better About Your Body. Okay, that explains a few things. Would you say that might explain why I got insane the other night? So I don't know if you guys know this game called the, what is it called? The Scrambled States of America. Our our kids have this board game. It's called the Scrambled States of America. It's really fun. And uh, I was killing it to the point where Dan was like, could you chill out? Our children might want to not like lose miserably to you. No comment. <laughs> so, so kind of continuing along the athletic vein, I was wondering if you could tell us one or two athletic accomplishments that you are most proud of because you have done a lot of amazing things, but I'm curious what resonates most with you. I have to marinate on that for a second. The first one would have to be, uh, this was, I want to say like 2018, I signed up for a sprint triathlon. You know, I trained, but it wasn't something that I had like created an intense training plan for or anything like that. It was just more or less for fun and to like test my fitness. But, you know, I had a fine swim and the bike was going well. I'm usually pretty strong on the bike of all the three disciplines. That's probably where I think I'm strongest. And as I was 
starting to ascend. This is a very hilly course. This race is called the Lookout Mountain Try. And something that I have learned over the years is if something has mountain in the name, it's going to be really hard. So this is the Lookout Mountain Try, and I'm going up this really steep hill, and suddenly it felt like I had a burly trailer full of cinder blocks attached to the bike. And I was like, what is going on? I could not even turn the pedals over. I got off the bike. I looked at the situation. I didn't even know what I was seeing. I couldn't figure out what was going on. It took me a long time to figure out that one of my cables had snapped. What that meant was I was stuck. I'm trying to think. I was stuck in my big ring. Couldn't use my small ring at all. And then within the big ring, I I must have been able to shift. But th- there were so many hills on this thing that you you just couldn't ascend them in your big ring. Or you could, but not all of them. So I had a choice at this point. Do I want to quit and try to figure out a ride? I was now maybe 12 miles from the start where my car was. Do I want to quit and try to get a ride? That's not going to be fun. What are my options? And I thought, well, the only option is just to to figure it out. I had to get out of the saddle for every single climb. And there were quite a few climbs that I was off of my bike and running, literally running my bike up the hills. Then I got to the transition area and I was like, okay, now I just have to run my ass off because that's all that's left. And the bike kind of sucked. Maybe I can make up for it. Performance-wise, it wasn't the best. But I was just really pleased with myself that I showed up and I made it work. And I solved the problem. Here I was taking the morning away from my family and I was like, I'm not going to waste it by quitting. That's so dumb. I guess it just kind of showed me that I can show up. I can figure out a solution. I, I will not quit. That, even though it wasn't like the longest race I ever did, it wasn't the hardest race I ever did. It wasn't like the first race I ever did. I felt really, really proud of that performance. Great. You promised us too. Okay. I'm also really proud of the fact that Dan had referenced in my intro that I did a three-mile swim. There was a 5K swim that I did pre-pandemic. That was 2019. And just to give you some perspective on what... So, okay. So this was a 5K swim. It was across the length of a local-ish reservoir. I made the cutoff time. I think I was in the bottom 10 people, not like 10 percentile, but like 10 people. There might have been, I don't know, five people slower than me. I'm not sure. I wasn't last, but I was close to it. But man, that felt so good to do. Just the fact that I even signed up for it to me was a victory because the first triathlon I ever did, it was a sprint triathlon. So it was only 750 meters. And I'm sure I wasn't in the last wave. Like with triathlons, the start is seated. So you don't all go at the same time. So even though I probably had a head start on half the participants, I got out of the water and I am not exaggerating. My bike was the only bike in the transition area. That was it. That was it. I knew I wasn't a good swimmer. Like, you know, when you go to the pool and you swim and you see the people in the other lanes and you have a sense of like, gosh, I'm never passing anyone. I'm actually always getting lapped, you know. But in that moment, I really knew I was like, whoa, my swim sucks so bad. Um, That was many years ago. But and I've been working so hard on my swim since then, sometimes more consistently than others. But and I never not that I ever didn't like swimming, but I didn't love swimming. My first half Ironman, the kayak was following me pretty much the whole time. I really wasn't sure if I was going to make the swim cut off in that race. They just kept on being like, are you okay? And I kept on being like, oh my God, leave me alone. I'm fine. This is embarrassing. The fact that I even wanted to do that, and I, and I did, I wasn't trying to even prove anything. I just did more swimming in the year leading up to that race and was like, you know, I actually really enjoy swimming. It'd be really fun to have a swim goal. I didn't even care that I was practically last. I was happy that I had 
the swim that I wanted to have. I felt smooth. I felt strong. At no point did I feel like I was going to like hyperventilate. The kayak was near me just because, you know, I was kind of near the end, but they weren't like, oh, ma'am, are you okay? They were just there. And I, w- I was just doing my thing. And it was, I was just enjoying the beauty of the scenery and the fact that I was there. And I, like my only regret was that I never did figure out how to pee in the water. I still haven't figured out how to do that unless my feet are on land. I would really like to figure that that out. I, I just want to point out something that's interesting to me. We talked about your competitiveness and you mentioned that. And then the two things you're most proud of were races where you were not competitive at all. Anyway, um, I'm kind of shifting away from fitness and Pam is uh, an intuitive eating coach. And so I wanted to talk to you or ask you how your relationship with food has changed over the years. That's a great question. I'm still working on it, but I would say, Dan, at the time that I met you, I'll just like take it back to that. At the time that I met you, I was under the illusion that my relationship with food was pretty good. And that was because I was training for an Ironman. When you are doing that much training, I would have been swimming, biking, running anywhere from 15 to 18, 20 hours a week. You're just naturally going to be hungry. You can practically not get enough food. It wasn't totally unusual for me to sometimes wake up in the middle of the night and be like, I think I need a bowl of cereal. To me, that represented what I thought was food freedom. But actually, I felt justified in eating what I wanted because I did all that exercise. At times when I wasn't training that much, I was very calculating, or I tried to be, about what I would and wouldn't eat. I just had all these rules. They were always changing. I usually broke them. I love food too much to be really good at dieting for sustained periods. I remember there was like a period in my life where I was just like so committed to the zone diet and I would have told anybody who asked that it was the answer to everything. But it wasn't. It was really restrictive and it made me crazy. Like if I unexpectedly got invited out to dinner, I'd have I'd have to do all these mental calculations of like, how can this work? How can I fit in the blocks of protein and carbs and fat and all this. Um, So yeah, there was a lot of disordered eating. I wasn't in eating disorder ever, but I definitely think it was disordered. But I also think the way I ate and thought about food was probably the way most people do. I don't think most of us see it as disordered, but now that I have some perspective on it, I actually think it is disordered to think that you need to earn your food, to think that you don't deserve to have dessert unless you've done this much of a workout or this intense of a workout. That is not a healthy way to think about food. And what I've realized, so so yeah, so you asked me my relationship with food. It's been chaotic. A typical pattern for me would be like, I, I struggled for a long time with black and white thinking. For a long time, it'd be like, I'm going to be good today. And then the minute I would eat a bite of, I don't know, say a cookie, then I would be like, oh, the day is shot. I might as well eat all the cookies and tomorrow I'll start fresh. And actually there's... um a study that looked at this phenomenon of what happens when people who are on a diet eat like one of something, they're way more likely to eat. I'm trying to think of the way the study was. I'll link to it in the show notes. But the point is these researchers identified what they called, I think they called it like the screw it effect. And yeah, so I had this like black and white thinking. I had these rigid rules and then I would break them. And then I'd be like, I'm off the wagon, whatever. I'll just be off the wagon for a few days. Then I'll get back on the wagon. All these like feelings of guilt and mental planning of what I wouldn't wouldn't eat. Things got bad after our second child was born because I could not lose the baby weight. That was distressing to me very much. I was like using my fitness pal and I was like measuring everything. I look back on that time and I'm like, what a waste. 
what a waste of my energy. God, I did a cleanse at that time. I, in my mind, I was like, and that was the thing, most of these dietetic endeavors, whatever you want to call them, I fooled myself into thinking it was for health because I would never say, oh, I'm on a diet. Oh, I'm trying to lose weight. But it wasn't about health. And even the stupid cleanse, I was secretly wanting to lose the baby weight, but I was acting like, I was like, oh, I just need like a reset. This diet was awful. It had me sharding multiple times. And I feel like the first time I sharded, I should have been like, I'm calling it quits with this cleanse. This, how can this be healthy? How can it be healthy that I'm shitting my pants? <laughs> but in my mind, I was like, this is definitely the pinnacle of health. I'm obviously detoxing. That's what sharding is, right? <laughs> Dan is blushing so hard over here. You can't even believe it. Um, oh, that was so bad. And then things got really bad a few years later when I, I started counting my macros. And that was the height of my crazy, I would say. Well, that was so bad. I'd be good, quote unquote, all week. And then Friday night, I'd have a couple glasses of wine and then I'd just start raiding the pantry. And Dan would be like in his most sweet tone of voice possible. Hey, sweetie, like, is that, are you sure that's what you want to do? He'd be watching me putting stale marshmallows in my mouth and like disgusting Kashi cereal because it was like the only carb that we had that came in a package. We didn't have anything good. So I'd just like eating whatever. And it was gross. And he'd be like, you really want to eat that? I'd be like, yes, this is what I want to eat in the morning. I'd be like, no, that is not what I wanted to do. Um, and it was just a cycle of eating like that and then feeling bad and, you know, getting back on the wagon and finally realizing I can't live this way anymore. This is ridiculous. I was chatting with the app that had like a chat bot and I was asking the chat bot what I should eat. And I was almost 40. It was like two weeks away from my birthday. And I just had this moment of clarity where I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm a grown woman asking an app what I should eat. I know what I should eat. I, all the, I, I've been like paying attention to all these made up rules for so long when really I already have all the answers inside of me. I have the answers. There's no need to be looking outside myself for what I need to eat. Yes, there was work to be done since that moment, but that was a huge turning point. From that point, um, I can't remember the exact chronology, but I had read some books on the topic. I think it was after that that I actually read Intuitive Eating. But yeah, everything changed, not just my relationship with food, but I feel like a lot of things changed when I started getting in touch with myself about what I wanted to eat. I also started getting in touch with myself about a lot of other decisions. And it's food is a really good starting point if you're operating, or at least in my experience, I was operating from a lot of shoulds and realizing those shoulds are just limits and they're not from inside of you. You know more than you think. You, I think most of us have everything we need to know inside of us, but we are afraid to trust it. We're living in this world that's telling us you're not good enough. So, hey, but guess what? There's something we can sell you. We can fix that problem for you when most times there's no problem to be fixed. And even if you can fix it, for most things, there is no magic bullet. There is no solution that you can pay for. You have to try things. You have to take a risk. You have to fail. You have to learn. You're not going to learn by letting somebody else feed you. the, Or maybe you'll learn that you shouldn't have let somebody else try to feed you the answers and that you wasted your money. Did that answer the question? I think so. I do have a follow-on question. If you could maybe in a sentence or two, kind of sum up what you wish other people knew about food. If this could be something that was put on a billboard in Times Square, what would you say? Honestly, it's not so much about food. It's about our cultural preference for thinner bodies. 
I think that fat phobia is so ingrained. It's hard to live in a world where fatness is demonized and seen as completely inferior and it's seen as like you're almost not even seen as fully human or deserving all the things that thin people deserve if you're fat. So how can you untangle our fat phobia from our feelings about food? Because that's what it all boils down to is this desire to be socially acceptable. I wish that society would view all bodies as equally deserving of love and care. That's great. Let's kind of shift into podcasting. And then I have one or two other questions and then we'll kind of wrap it up. First, I want to know how you got into podcasting. I think I have Martin Mugley to thank. Do you remember? (laughs) Martin's a friend of ours who we haven't seen in a really long time. But I will always remember Martin for being a single guy who knew exactly what we needed when we had a baby. Like where most people are bringing you. I mean, and no, I'm not trying to be ungrateful for all the nice baby gifts that we got. But like you don't really need another bib or another onesie. Martin came over with... Indian takeout for us, which is exactly what we wanted. We were like, how did he know? Go Martin. So it was Martin that was like, you're funny. You should have a podcast. And this was 2012. And I was like, what's a podcast? How would one listen to a podcast? Like what? It was so foreign to me. But the idea had been brewing. It had really been like slowly percolating for quite a while. I know Dan is Dan and I sort of joke that I am somebody who dives into things head first and he's more of a toe dipper with the podcasting. I think I was sort of like dipping my toe for a long time. And I got the idea probably sometime around 2019 that my massage therapist, who I'd known for a long time, he was like, you should have a podcast. You'd be funny. You'd be good. And he was like, I have all the equipment. I'm not using it if you want to borrow it, if you want to give it a try. At that point, I was like, yes. Wow. Okay. Okay. This is a sign. I've been thinking about it. He's offering me the equipment. I'm going to do this. And it was within weeks of me making this decision of like, this is something I want to try. That, And I think, yeah, because months before that, I'd been trying to narrow down what I would call it and exactly what the mission would be and exactly who I wanted to be speaking to. I'd been thinking about all those things. I'd been running different names for the show by my friends. And then the pandemic started. And I was like, there's no way. I can't even... I was just trying to get through every day with our kids being home from school and grateful to have plenty of work. But it was, as everyone knows, it was super stressful. And I was like, why am I going to add another optional thing to my load? I, I cannot do it. I just cannot. And the months kept ticking by. So obviously that was March 2020. Now we're into the summer and we're still living like this. And it was like, well... This pandemic is how we're going to live for the foreseeable future. Am I going to put this thing on hold forever? I think I can figure out a way to do this imperfectly, but at least do it because I've been curious about it for so long. And I think not only did I realize this pandemic is dragging on for who knows how long, but I also became very aware, I think because of the pandemic and all the things that we lost, thankfully we didn't lose loved ones, but a lot of people did. I, you know, we saw all the loss and we experienced so much of the things we took for granted being taken away. And here was something I'd been wanting to try that you can absolutely do virtually, which is how I've been doing it. And I thought, what am I waiting for? Life is so short. It's not a given that you're going to have another day. I need to do this. So I started really planning it and working toward it. Like I started doing my first interviews in the fall of 2020 and launched it. Yeah, May 4th, 2020. 21. My God. Yeah. So that's 
that's how it happened. It was all just a matter of like, I'm really curious about how this would be. I think it would be really fun. I know that it would connect me to people that I want to be connected to, having conversations about things that I want to talk about. And where even if I'm writing a profile on somebody for a story that I'm writing, I might talk to that one person for 30, 45 minutes, and I'll get a transcript out of that that might be 10,000 words. And I have to whittle their story down to about 1,000 words to be published. And it has to have a beginning, a middle, an end, hopefully some tension. And that's really fun. And I enjoy that in a way. It's like creating an ice sculpture almost. You're just making something out of nothing, like making all these words have the most impact they can have because you only have a thousand words. But then you have all those 9,000 words that are stuck in my computer in an audio file and stuck in a Google Doc somewhere. And it's really nice to have the freedom to ask the kind of questions I want to ask of my guests and share all of it, not just those sexy 800 to 1,000 words. So that's part of why I'm really excited about this format too. If you're a writer or an aspiring writer who wants to know exactly what it takes to break into your dream publications, I have something just for you. It's a 34-page ebook I wrote called Seven Pitches That Sold. And in it, I share everything I wish I'd known when I started out as a freelance writer. It also includes seven pitches that turned into assignments for outlets including Runner's World, The Washington Post, and Outside Magazine. Use the code REALFIT50 at checkout to get half off because friends don't let friends pay full price. And the link where you can purchase it is in the show notes. So I guess I kind of expected you to begin with uh, the Donahue interview of the stuffed animals. Can you tell us that story? Oh, yes. Thanks for asking about Donahue and the stuffed animals, Dan. I forgot about that. When I was a child, one of my earliest memories was waiting for my mom to come in my room after a nap. I was in my crib. I remember it really clearly. Like there was that orangey like afternoon light and I lined up all my stuffed animals. And the only talk show host at the time was Phil Donahue. There were no women. I think the next one was probably either Oprah or Sally Jesse, but that wasn't until the late 80s. I was born in 78. So anyhow. I was Phil Donahue and I was interviewing my stuffed animals. So I guess this has always been in my DNA. That's fantastic. The other question I had for you about podcasting is, what have you learned from podcasting? I learned a lot. Do you want like a top three or like just one really amazing nugget or what? I guess I would say, what's the one or two most important things, whether it's technical or interview style or just kind of goal setting and achieving goals, what would you say are the one or two most important things that you've taken from, that you've learned from your podcast experience? I don't, I, I feel like this one is the one I'm about to say. It's important and it's not completely novel, but I think it's a thing that is worth learning again and reinforcing all the time. I learned that it's really worthwhile to go after something that you want when you really know why you want to do it and you have a good reason for it because all of the things that might be holding you back, like for me, and I think this is pretty common experience for people, you think, oh my God, I want to do X, Y, Z. Oh, that could be so amazing. I could, I could see it being so fun. But then as you really start to dig into it, you get paralyzed by how you're going to make that happen. 
I had so many questions. I think one of the reasons I procrastinated for so long was I don't know how to record good audio or audio at all. I don't know how to edit audio. I don't know how to choose a podcasting platform. I don't know how to get my stuff from the podcasting platform into Spotify and Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and Overcast. I don't know how to write show notes. So many unknowns. As I've realized again and again and again in my life when I take on challenges, if you really want something and you have a good reason, you're going to figure out the hows. With YouTube and Google, there is like actually no excuse to not be able to figure something out. I'm not a tech-savvy person, and I have learned how to edit audio on like four different platforms. I'm not even exaggerating. I some The first couple, I was like, this platform sucks. And I realized now there was probably a huge user error, but live and learn. Um, yeah, so that's a big one is just don't let the house hold you back. You will figure it out if you really want the thing. Another thing that I've learned is you're never going to get what you don't ask for. There have been a few guests that I was intimidated to reach out to. And, and yeah, there's been guests that have ignored me or potential guests that have ignored me or said no thanks. But there's also been quite a few that I was so honored that they made time out of their busy schedule to speak with me. If I had been too afraid and too shy to ask. I would have never gotten to connect with them and to share their stories with my listeners. Um, and then the other thing that I've learned, maybe not about, not from podcasting generally, but from this podcast and getting to connect with these women that I speak to, I always ask them what success means to them. And this probably won't surprise anybody, but I love that not a single person has ever said to me, oh, it means this amount of money in the bank or this amount of copies of my book sold or this amount of downloads on my podcast. Nothing they ever say about success includes external metrics. And that totally tracks with things I've experienced in my own life. Like, you know, I PR a race and I'm happy for like a day. And then three days later, I'm already scheming. How can I run faster next time? That that feeling of wanting to achieve some kind of quantifiable goal the goalpost is always moving with something like that. My guests always define their successes as something a lot more internal. It's a feeling. It's a way of showing up in the world. It's knowing that they've somehow made a bigger contribution that's bigger than themselves, something like that. And I just, I just love hearing them talk about those things. And it's a frequent reminder to me that it doesn't matter if 100 people download this, download this episode or 400 people or a thousand. It doesn't matter. It's like, am I putting something out there that I believe in? That's what really matters. Nobody can measure the lessons that I'm teaching my kids by living my life in the way that I think or try to live in a way that aligns with my values. No one will ever be able to put a number on that. But I don't know anything you can measure that's more important than that. So I just love having those reminders. That's great. So if I were to sum up I would say that you've learned from the podcast the value of overcoming your ignorance and kind of fighting through to figure out something that you weren't sure you could figure out. You figured out that you don't get what you don't ask for, which is a hugely important lesson for everybody. And as you mentioned, something that you want to learn. <laughs> Sometimes we need to learn over and over again. And the third is that success is not external because of hedonic adaptation, but it's actually internal. Is that a fair summation? Yeah, I really like that reflective listening, Dan. Have you thought about being a podcast host? <laughs> I, I have some good people to emulate. My final question that's specific is, 
you are well known in this household for getting lost. And so I wondered if you could share uh, a funny or the funniest situation you've ever found yourself lost in. That's a hard question to answer because there's been so, so many. Um, (laughs) So damn many. I'm going to, okay, I can't narrow it down to one. I'm going to tell you two. I went through a phase of not using a smartphone because I just did not like my relationship with my phone to sum it up. But I actually have a blog post about it. I can post it in the show notes. But um, I used a flip phone for a year. And during that year, one of our kids needed to go to a birthday party. I wrote down the address on a piece of paper like we used to do in the old days. And I knew the street or I thought I knew the street. So now I'm just like driving around the street. I must have made four U-turns on the street. It's not a long street. And this address doesn't exist. And I'm like, oh, shit, my kid's going to be late to a party because I'm an idiot. And I, I, we have two cars or we had two cars at the time. Now we have one and an e-bike. But at the time we had two. And I took the one that does not have an in-dash GPS. So that was no help to me. I don't have a map in the car. Who has a map in the car anymore? It felt like maybe we were just never going to get to this party when... <laughs> When I saw a guy, I think he he must have been on an e-bike with two kids on the back. And I thought, that guy looks familiar. I've definitely seen him at the kids' school. And so I rolled up to him and I rolled my window down. And I think I saw a present somewhere on the bike apparatus. It seemed like maybe they were going to the same birthday party. So I rolled down my window and I was like, hey, are you going to so-and-so's birthday by any chance? And he was like, yeah, we are. I was like, where is it? It turned out this street, there was like a south name of the street and then like a normal name of the street. And I was on the normal one, not realizing that the south one didn't. Okay, the the details are irrelevant. I found the party. Um, I guess that's sort of a testament to like, sometimes I think that there's got to be some kind of angel or something watching out for me, because how does that happen? Similar to the other story. I don't know if it's as, if it's funny, it's actually really scary. Harkening back to the intro where I was describing that I didn't even mind the worms is how much I love Dan. Also how much I loved, I mean, I still love Dan very much. But when you're in that early phase of your relationship, the love is a little bit different. I was willing and even eager to go to a wedding with him. I was his plus one at this wedding. They had reserved a block of rooms at a local hotel, just as any wedding couple does. But Dan said, let's not do that. Let's camp. And I was like, okay, let's do it. I'm your outdoorsy girl. (laughs) Which I'm not. So I camped for a wedding. And the event was right before I was doing Ironman Wisconsin that fall, I knew that the campground was by a lake. I brought my swim cap and my goggles and I said to Dan, I'm just going to go for a swim. He said, sure, that's great. I had a watch. I thought I'll go out 30 minutes. I'll come back 30 minutes. How complicated is that? When you're somebody that gets lost like I do, it's actually really complicated. And that's really stupid, actually. I would never, again, bad sense of direction or no, I would never do an open water swim like that again without a flotation device or a person in a kayak near me. But I was like... 30 and I thought nothing could ever happen to me. Maybe I was 29. I don't know. I was stupid. I go for the swim and didn't realize how much every cove on the shore of this lake looks like every other cove. I'm swimming to the shore and realizing I actually don't think I did an out and back because I don't know where I am now. Nothing looks familiar on this shoreline. Like it looked looked like the right place, you know, 
300 yards ago or 1,000 yards ago. Now I don't know what the fuck's going on. But what could I do? The sun was setting. I didn't have time to turn all the way back around and risk maybe not going back the right way. Anyway, so I just got to the shore. And yeah, so I had brought the cap and the goggles, but I had not brought a a proper swimsuit. So I'm in a cute little bikini and I'm soaking wet and it's dusk in Chama, New Mexico. And I saw a guy fishing. So I said, can I borrow your phone? And he said, no. (laughs) So I thought, okay, all right, now I'm barefoot, dripping wet. It's getting colder. I venture farther into this campground. And again, like the first person I saw, I guess now this would be the second person I saw. I said, excuse me, do you have a phone I could borrow? And either she didn't or we weren't getting reception. She said, what do you need? And I was like, well, I'm I'm lost and I need to just find my boyfriend. I'm sure he's worried about me. I need to tell him where I am. And she said, oh, well, honey, let me give you a ride. And I thought, hallelujah. Oh, my God. Like I said, there's an angel out there for me. This woman is my angel. And then she's like, let me just drink this. And out of nowhere comes this shot glass of an amber liquid, which I have to assume was must have been bourbon or whiskey or something. She's like, let me just drink this. So she throws that back. And I'm like, oh, shit. How much of this has she already had? Like, Who is this person? What am I doing? But I you don't really have any good options when it's getting dark and you're barefoot and you're freezing cold, dripping wet in a two-piece bathing suit. I was like at her mercy. So I said, all right, whatever. I, I thought, how far could it be from this campground to our campground? I at least knew the name of the campground. We started to go there. And we hadn't been in the car for more than two minutes when I looked in the rear view and I said, pull over. I see my boyfriend in the rear view mirror. He, he was driving around, I guess, looking for me. I don't know how he thought he would find me. But the best part of this story, I think, is when we finally reunited and we were debriefing, he told me that he had been reading a book, intermittently looking up at me, but reading a book mostly. And these other people who were sharing the dock area with him, at one point he said they looked at him and said, is that your wife? She's swimming really far. And everything else flew out of my head because all I wanted was for him to ask me to marry him. And I was like, wait, they said wife? They said wife? And I looked and he didn't seem to be disgusted by it or freaked out or anything. I was like, you had me and the word wife in your mind at the same time? This can only be good. It was worth it. <laughs> that was great. That, that was a funny story. And I will say in my defense that that campground did have flush toilets and outlets. So it wasn't a total barbarian expedition. Yeah, I did get to blow dry my hair for the wedding. It was a nice campground, but it was a campground. Well, Pam, this has been really great to delve in a little bit more, talk about your fitness journey, talk about some of the intuitive eating stuff you've done and learn about your podcasting experience. My final question before we wrap up is, is there anything else you want your listeners to know? I'm glad you asked that, Dan. I know I say it in every episode, but I mean it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have ever sent me a text or a Facebook message or an Instagram message or an email If you have told me I liked this episode or this touched me or this, I relate to this, I'm enjoying it. If you have given me any support, whether in that way directly or simply just listened to it and didn't tell me, I know you're out there. Like, I see my download numbers. I know people are listening. I'd like to say I would do this even if I knew nobody was listening. I'm not sure. It's a lot of work. (laughs) It's a lot of time. But it really feels good to know that I am creating something that 
hopefully entertains you, makes your life better, inspires you in some way, that's really special to me. I know that there are probably millions of podcasts you could be listening to, to right now. And I know that time is our most precious resource. And the fact that you're giving me any of yours means a lot to me. I'm just deeply grateful for that. That's a fantastic note to end on. Thank you very much for listening to the Real Fit Podcast. This has been Dan Moore interviewing Pam Moore. Thanks, Dan. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Real Fit. If you like what you're hearing, I would appreciate it so much. If you haven't already, rate this podcast, review it, subscribe, and tell a friend. That helps me spread the message that you are already enough. If you're not already on my email list, please consider this my personal invitation. You're invited to join my email list. When you join, you're going to get a free gift. It is my guide called 11 Things You Can Do Right Now to Feel Better in Your Body. You'll also get exclusive subscriber-only content in your email. You can find that link in the show notes, or you can visit my website, pam-more.com. If you're ready to stop obsessing about exercise, food, and the shape and size of your body, and you want to start living your life in a way that is truly aligned with your values, I can help. I'm a weight-neutral health coach with a background as an occupational therapist and as a certified personal trainer. To learn more about how I can help you through one-on-one coaching, visit pam-more.com. You can also find that link in the show notes. And if you have anything you want to tell me about this podcast, if there are topics you don't want to hear any more about, questions that you have, topics you do want to hear more about, let me know. Send your emails to me at pam at pam-more.com. I'm also on Instagram at pammore303 and on Twitter at pammorewriter. Again, thank you so much for listening with much gratitude. Until next time, keep it real. Keep it real.